Welcome back to Supreme Myths. I am thrilled today to have as my guest my friend Jeffrey R. Stone. The His resume is so long I had to have papers printed out uh, to remind myself, but he is the Edward H. Levi Distinguished Service Professor at the University of Chicago, where he has been since 1973, after serving as a law clerk for Justice William Brennan, not only has he been a faculty member at Chicago, he's been dean of the law school, provost of the university, the author of hundreds of articles, op-eds, and essays, and, and too many books to name, a couple of them, uh, The Enduring Constitutional Vision of the Warren Court, The Free Speech Century, and his newest book, National Security Leaks and the Freedom of the Press, will be out, I guess, in spring of 2021. Uh, Jeff has been on all kinds of committees, and he's written amicus briefs in some of our most important cases, including Obergefell versus Hodges, Lawrence versus Texas, uh, an underrated case, Rasul versus Bush, uh, and a bunch of others. Jeff, it's so great to have you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Eric. I'm delighted to be here. It's really my pleasure. Um, let's start with current events. And, and then this, I'm, we're going to talk a lot about free speech, but let's talk with current events. So I'm just you know, you've been around the block a little bit. Um, I'm curious what you think about Judge Barrett. I'm curious what you think about the future of the Supreme Court. And I'm curious what you think about court reform if the Democrats happen to win the Senate and the presidency. Well, um, in terms of the current state of the Supreme Court, um, I find it deeply disturbing. Um, I think that um, traditionally, uh, the court was not divided, the justices were not divided on partisan grounds. There were liberals and conservatives, there were people with a range of different views, but if you go back and look, for example, at the Warren Court, some of the most liberal justices were appointed by Republican presidents like Earl Warren and, Ju and Justice Brennan, um, and some of the more conservative justices like Frankfurter and Tom Clark uh, were appointed by the Democratic presidents, and there was no partisan divide in the court. Um, today, I think we see that more dramatically than ever before in our history. And it seriously undermines the credibility of the court and the integrity of the court as an institution. I find that deeply disturbing. Um, Amy Coney Barrett is another one of the very right-wing, conservative, rigid justices. And she will fit in that camp very um, neatly. Um, I have no doubt that she will go along with and indeed lead in some instances uh, that part of the court. Um, but the division that now exists just completely undermines what a court is for. Um, what you want in a Supreme Court is justices who look at the issues posed in a manner that is not partisan, um, that may have their own attitudes about what is liberal, what is conservative, what is the right way to interpret but they, they are basically trying to engage in the same exercise. And that's not what we have today. And I think that seriously undermines um, the court as an institution and is deeply troubling because the court can reach, and, and this court will reach, um, many very controversial, many ideological decisions that I think are likely to do real harm to our nation. And um, so I, I find all of that um, deeply disturbing. And as someone who has spent almost half a century thinking about constitutional law and thinking about the Supreme Court, um, I truly think this is a low point um, in our in our history. Um, and in terms of, um, I'm sorry, what was the other part of the question uh, you well, asked? So was if the Democrat, I, I hate talking about this because I, I really, you know, A, I don't want to jinx it, but more rationally, I think Democrats would do well not to talk about this until afterwards. But if they should get the Senate and the presidency, I, I think, um, you know, I've been more open to court reform in the past, obviously, than you have been. But I'm curious if you've moved 
in the direction where the Democrats should do something? Well, what's what's moved me is the actions of Mitch McConnell and the Republicans in the Senate, um, in the Merrick Garland and the Amy Coney Barrett nominations. Um, the fact that there are more Republican point appointed justices than Democrat pointed justices or conservatives and liberals, I don't like necessarily, but in, in and of itself, it's not necessarily illegitimate. But the thing that really goes beyond the pale is the refusal to confirm Merrick Garland, a moderate liberal 64 year old nominee because of the false claim that we do not confirm presidential nominees to the court in the final year of a president's term. It's simply not true historically. And yet McConnell used that disingenuous argument to refuse to confirm a nominee who absolutely was qualified in every relevant way to be on the Supreme Court. And then he turns around yeah. in the current moment and he proceeds to presumably will confirm a nominee um, who was put forth in the last month of a president's term. And that hasn't happened for all practical purposes in 150 years, in fact. And indeed, when Abraham Lincoln had the opportunity at the end of his first term to fill a seat on the Supreme Court because a vacancy arose in the last month of his term, he said, no, I don't think it's appropriate to do that. We're having an election. Let the next president make this decision. So the combination of those two acts seems to me to be completely illegitimate and a violation of the norms of our nation. So that, to me, is the most utterly problematic point of this. So I think I would support a decision, assuming that Biden wins and the Democrats control the House and the Senate, to increase the size of the court by two justices. And that would still leave the Republicans in the majority, with the 6-5 majority. But it would put the court back where it would have been had McConnell confirmed Garland and confirmed um, Barrett. And that, to me, is a better, more realistic place to be. And I, I would rather have 6-5 Democrats or, or 7-2 Democrats, frankly. <laughs> but I think the, the, the true fundamental Ill illegitimacy here is the, is the way that the, the Senate Republicans have handled these two cases. And they would have had a 5-4 majority had they both been confirmed. Right. And I think at the very least, we should put it back to that. And the only way to do that is to make it a 6-5 Republican majority. And I'm assuming this is the first time in your 50 years of watching following the Supreme Court that you, despite periods during that time of very conservative decision making, this is the first time you're open to this idea. Yeah. And for me, this is not about liberal and conservative. It's about following in a consistent and nonpartisan way the norms of nomination and confirmation yeah. to make up for it. I mean, I would I would honestly feel just as upset if it had been Democrats who did this to Republicans. I mean, I do believe that it's important for the court to have integrity, to have its its institutional values, and this is a case in which that all of that has been corrupted in a way that undermines the credibility and legitimacy of the Supreme Court. That's now, not acceptable. A Republican might respond, or a conservative might respond, that um, this modern, I mean, the, the fights over Supreme Court nominees go back to 1800. I mean, it's nothing new. But in, in the modern era, they might say, look, Bork, it should have been a Supreme Court with Judge Bork. 
which would have made it a very different Supreme Court than Justice Kennedy. We wouldn't have Casey. We wouldn't have Obergefell. Democrats did this first, and this is just payback for that. Um, I, I think I think the Bork case was a complicated one. Um, Bork made a tactical decision that backfired. He decided to treat the confirmation process as if it was an academic seminar. And he engaged the senators in his views in a very transparent way, much more so than his predecessors and certainly much more so than his successors. And I think that was a strategic mistake. And to some degree, I think justices should be open to explaining their views. But Bork went way beyond that. And he cast himself, quite frankly, as a conservative radical. And I don't think I would have voted against his confirmation, despite that. Mm-hmm. But I do think that the, the vote, and there were a number of Republicans who voted against Bork. Bork would have been confirmed, but for Republicans who voted against him. Um, so I, I do think that was not a purely partisan outcome. Um, it's true that p- predominantly Democrats voted against, but there were also Republicans. Okay. And Bork, Bork basically made a mistake that set himself up for that outcome. I have one last question about this, Jeff, and it is a controversial one, um, and, and I hope you'll indulge me in it. Um, when Judge Barrett, who I know a little bit, and is a very nice person from what I can tell, um, when, when she was nominated to the Seventh Circuit, I made the point that, and this is going to get it's a little controversial, that there were hundreds of constitutional law professors around the country who, but for the Scalia clerkship, had resumes longer and better than hers. Um, frankly, you know, well, they just were. Um, uh, conservatives, I mean, even con- you know, maybe not hundreds of conservatives, but there were certainly dozens of conservative law professors with resumes better than hers, other than the Scalia clerkship, which only happened because John Garvey, I think, saw this coming a long time away. John was the dean of Notre Dame, told Scalia she's the best student she ever ha- he ever had. He hires her. Without that clerkship, I don't think she gets nominated to the Seventh Circuit. Do you agree with that? I think that's probably, yeah, I agree. I mean, that gave her credibility and visibility that she would not otherwise have had. I think, even though she had a great resume, I'm not, I went to Vanderbilt, she went to Notre Dame, I'm not, she went to Rhodes, I went to Emory, I'm not denigrating anything. I'm just saying to try to figure out what makes her different than dozens of other, you know, conservative constitutional law professors is very hard to see, even with the Scalia clerkship, because one, would, one might say, well, we always appoint Harvard and Yale grads, and she's Notre Dame, and, and Rhodes, you know, we had that conversation. Um, my view is that the Federalist Society and the dark money behind it has been in front, has been behind Judge Barrett for a long time, and really wanted her to be on the Supreme Court someday, and maybe even be the person to overturn Roe because we have a woman and a. Mo- Do you agree with all that? Or you think I'm crazy? No, I think that's I think that's perfectly uh, logical, and I think I don't I don't know enough inside baseball there to be able to say I know this to be true. Sure, but if you ask, you know, how did this come about? Clearly, it's the Federal Society that engineered this. And um, they obviously know who she is and what she was likely to do. And um, she's a woman, which was appealing for other reasons. So I think that understanding of it makes perfect sense, although I don't have enough personal information to say it myself. When you say the Federalist Society engineered it, um, so I, I, uh, I wrote an op-ed with Caroline, Caroline Fredrickson in the New York Times about how the Federalist Society's website says 
they don't support nominees for public office. And what an absurd claim that is. And there are still – just yesterday, Jeff, just yesterday on our very – or two days ago, on our very nerdy con law list, I had conservative Federalist Society members yelling at me that there's no evidence that the Federalist Society su- supports these judges. In a couple of sentences, can you speak to that? Yeah, that's ridiculous. I mean, the Federalist Society was created by um, Robert Bork and Antonin Scalia for intellectual reasons. I mean, they basically felt that there was a need for conservatives to figure out how to articulate and approach the constitutional law that was credible and principled and made sense. Um, They did not believe in the Nixon view that judicial restraint is what we should do. And so they came up with originalism and advocated that initially it was it was meant to be a serious intellectual uh, approach to constitutional law. Over the years, it has become a political organization that has a rigid goal, which is beginning with law students and as far as I know, maybe even college students, but promoting um, a certain set of ideological views um, with law students, for example, um, and basically, the, the federal society appointed judges now are complicit in that because they will only hire federal society members from students as their law clerks, which is an outrageous thing to do. It's a complete violation of the appropriate norms of choosing law clerks. And it's bad for the judges themselves because they should have diversity in their chambers. And they should be able to hear perspectives from different students with different ideas. Federal society judges now won't even do that. They basically regard it as their job to hire federal society students as their law clerks and then to promote them into the next stage of their careers. And the liberal side, the American Constitution Society, for example, to its credit, but which, which we should say we're both members of, we, we're both members of and do a lot of work for. Go ahead. Um, they have declined consciously to take that position. Um, They basically have said it's inappropriate for law professors to be promoting students for clerkships because of the ideological views of the students and the the professors. And they've said that it's inappropriate for federal judges um, to hire law clerks because they agree with them ideologically, even if that would benefit the long-term interests of the American Constitution Society and liberal. Now, that, that has come back to be a real problem. The differential between the approaches of the federal society, which are aggressively political, and the principled approach of the American Constitution Society, I, I greatly admire what the American Constitution Society has done, and I support it completely, but it's just shocking to see what an impact this has had. So the federal society, in my view, went from being a legitimate academic intellectual institution to being a extremely partisan, political, manipulative, power-crazy institution with really only one goal in mind, and that is to stack the courts with people who take a specific view about the law and about constitutional law. And I find that deeply distressing. But that is the state of the world today. So I might I might suggest some friendly amendments to that. Um, uh, but first, I agree – one thing that's very important is that the American Constitution Society now for several years does not take the position that it doesn't support nominees for public office. On its website, you won't find that because it does and it admits that it does. What the Federal Society is doing is one thing. Their lack of transparency about it is something else. And that's what I've been fighting and that's what makes me very upset. The friendly amendment that I would put on there is I do think still, at, for example, at my law school, 
We don't have any conservative public law professors. We just don't. But we have a thriving Federalist um, Student Society membership, which I'm the de facto person for to get debates and people and stuff, um, which I'm happy to do because I agree with everything you said about the leadership of the Federalist Society. I agree with that 100%. I've been writing that. I do think that there's still a part of that group that has very good academic programs, debates, balanced panels. I'm doing one on October 30th with an, with an originalist where, you know, every time I do this, it's always a balanced thing. So I, I wish they would keep those programs, which I think are pretty good, but be honest about the agenda of the institution. Does that make sense? Is that fair? Yeah, you get the programs at Chicago that the Federal Society put, puts forth. They're often balanced debates yeah. and so on. So I agree with that. that that's fair. Yeah, okay. All right. Um, that uh, end of current events for now. <laughs> we'll come back to it. Um, you are, I think, you know, one of the leading experts on free speech in the United States in the world. Um, and uh, you've written about it, I think, your whole career. I have a couple questions about general questions uh, that the audience may not, the audience such as it is, may not really understand about free speech in America. Can you do a short, and I'll let you speak for a while, summary of the arc of free speech from how it began to the 60s to what I think is the Lochnerizing of free speech now in the Roberts Court? So one thing most people don't understand is that the First Amendment had almost no impact on American law or society um, from the time it was adopted until the 20th century. Um, that the first time the Supreme Court directly addressed the meaning of the First Amendment did not happen until 1919. And so the first thing to understand is it is now it's been over a century, but it's still a relatively modern part of American law. Second thing about it that people don't often understand um, is that the current strong protection of free speech took a long time to emerge even after 1919. And that in the early half century, between then and say 1969, the court took a very cautious view about protecting free speech and frequently upheld our, our criminal convictions of individuals for criticizing the war, criticizing the draft, or espousing communism. Um, it's only in the last roughly half century that we have had a Supreme Court jurisprudence about the First Amendment that has given very substantial protection to free speech. And, and the reason that point is important to understand is that this is not written in stone. This is not something which First we should take for granted. No pun intended. <laughs> this, is, this is not something we should take for granted. Um, free speech is, in fact, um, a relatively um, tentative reality in our society. And it's right now quite well embedded, maybe too much embedded in some respects. But uh, it's important for people to understand when they attack free speech that it is not, in fact, something that we should assume is always going to be there to protect us. And I think that's a, a, a critical understanding that people often lack and need to understand. A point I often make in talking to students, for example, about this, is that they have to recognize that I understand why they don't like certain views being expressed. I may not like those views either. But that they have to recognize that the, it's the aggressive protection of free speech that made possible the civil rights movement, the women's rights movement, the gay rights movement. If, if the majority had the power to suppress that speech, which it regarded as completely illegitimate and wrongheaded, then those movements would never have occurred or succeeded. And they have to recognize that. 
And so I think that's an important element of the current moment. Right. Um, what do you think of the Roberts Court? So as late as 19, mid-70s, commercial speech. And by that, I mean really just advertisements, uh, more or less. Um, I will sell you this product, or this product's a good product. Or, um, up until the mid-1970s, there was no protection for commercial speech. And now it feels like the Roberts Court is willing to protect everything that hurts big business as free speech. Um, what do you think about that? In fairness, it's not just everything that um, hurts or helps big business. I mean, Roberts has described himself as the, as the greatest protector of free speech in our nation. And in, in, a, in an objective sense, there's some truth to that. So on the one hand, it is the case that, that conservative justices, going back before Roberts um, to the 1970s on commercial advertising, um, expanded the protection of free speech beyond what had been the case before to go beyond the political, the artistic, the literary to commercial advertising. And the court had earlier held commercial advertising is not protected by the First Amendment. And it is true that the Roberts Court, in a range of ways, has dramatically expanded the protection of free, free speech, aggressively expanded the protection of free speech to business-oriented commercial activities and the like. And there are arguments that can fairly be made that that's not what the First Amendment should be understood to be about. On the other hand, ironically perhaps, the Roberts Court has also dramatically expanded the protection of free speech in a range of other ways, many of which I don't happen necessarily to agree with. So one example of that, a you know, fundamental example, is campaign finance. Yeah. Where John Roberts would say, I am a profound protector of free speech. You cannot limit what individuals can spend to support their political candidates because that would limit them in terms of what they are free to say. And that is a fundamental intrusion upon free speech. And if, if the question is, is he expanding free speech? Well, from that technical perspective, yes, he is, right? Um, similarly, um, the court has taken, in a couple of recent decisions, a very odd view about content-based and viewpoint-based restrictions, where historically the court has recognized that there's a difference between laws that, that restrict the communication of specific viewpoints, like the war is bad. Um, Which should never be allowed. Which should never be allowed, right. And content-based rules that aren't based on viewpoint, which say, for example, um, uh, no political ads in a public bus, which is very different from no ads criticizing the mayor in a public right. bus. Right. The latter is viewpoint-based, the former is content-based. The court has recognized that content-based rules can be problematic, but they're not as problematic as viewpoint-based rules. The Roberts Court, amazingly, in two recent decisions, has said, all content-based rules and viewpoint-based rules should be tested the same way. That is under strict scrutiny. And content-based rules are just as bad under the First Amendment as viewpoint-based rules. Now, the argument would be, we are aggressively protecting free speech, right? And the problem with that, however, is first of all, it's over-protecting certain kinds of free speech, which in and of itself might not be a terrible thing, but the problem is, once you do that, the risk of watering down the protection that you give to viewpoint-based rules is, if not inevitable, a dangerous consequence. Jeff, on, on campaign... Yeah, I'm sorry, go on. No, no, on camp, I want to go back to campaign finance because that's a big issue yeah. in the news. I, I have a, um, 
<laughs> I have a take on this that I just um, – it's so frustrating because I, th- I think it's so obviously right. Everybody is so upset about Citizens United, and, and I agree that all of the broad holdings in Citizens United are really problematic. At the end of the day, though, that case was about a movie that the government wanted to censor 60 days prior to an election – and my sense of that is that is that is that that's probably wrong. That the government can't do that, not in the way citizens. To me, the villain needs to be McCutcheon, not Citizens United, because in the McCutcheon case, which comes afterwards, a guy in Alabama writes a check to a politician in California. That's free speech. See, I don't see that. Or if, or if it is free speech, clearly the 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 cor- the anti-corruption aspects or the anti or the pro-equality. Um, interest the government might have should outweigh the interest in writing a check, which is not speech. Do you have a thought on that? Because it drives me crazy. <laughs> I, I don't agree that writing a check is not speech. I mean, I think that, you know, if, if, if there is a, a political candidate I want to support because I believe in his views and I want his views to be expressed effectively. And the most efficient way for me to do that is not to go out and hand out leaflets, but it's to give him the power to convey his views by writing him a check. I do believe that's speech within the meaning of the First Amendment. Um, It may be called symbolic speech, whatever, but I think it is speech in the First Amendment. The key question here is to what extent one can limit it, right? And the the argument of the conservatives on on the court is basically that this is like telling someone, you've spoken enough, shut up, sit down and be quiet. You can't speak anymore. Once you've handed out X number of leaflets, or once you've given an X number of speeches in a public park, you're done. You're finished. You have to be done. That's it. They've, that's the way they've treated lim- limitations on camp finance, campaign finance. My view about regulating campaign finance is that there is this competing government interest in having fair elections. And, for example, imagine if there was going to be a presidential debate and in the presidential debate, the moderator said, okay, we'll give out the first 10 minutes to whichever of you bids the most money. <laughs> and then the next 10 minutes goes to whoever bids the most money. Well, everybody would say, that is crazy. Right. That's not the way we should have public discourse. And that's what's going on here. And I think that, that the, the reason why so many Americans do believe there should be campaign finance regulation is because no democracy should function in such a way so that a relatively small number of billionaires are able to have a wildly disproportionate impact on public discourse. And that's a very compelling interest that needs to be given weight. And the fact that Republican justices, Republican appointed justices, or Republican justices, have (laughs) (laughs) have declined to recognize that core reality is deeply disturbing. I agree with that. I also think we should we should distinguish between movies, books, speeches, and, and writing checks. I'll concede writing a check to a candidate or maybe to a newspaper or whatever is speech. But we make distinctions among different kinds of speech all the time. And writing a check to a candidate is not the same as limiting what the can, how many speeches the candidate can actually give in a public park. Those aren't so the same how things. About, how about if, if a billionaire – decides to spend $500 million uh, producing um, ads on TV supporting a candidate or producing leaflets, if that's relevant. Right. Um, 
th- that's speech. You're not giving it to the candidate, right. right? Wouldn't you limit that? Yeah, I would. No, I, well, I think I think you're. I think then we get into the balancing. I, I do. Um, I, I'm just saying the McCutcheon case. Your your hypo is easy. If if you are. If I'm making a commercial to put on TV and I'm paying for it, or I hire someone to make it for me, that's speech. But putting a check in the mail <laughs> might be speech, but it's a different kind of speech than political speech. I have a couple other hard questions about free speech for you, and we may disagree on some of these. Um, that's good. Yeah. My first that's one you may agree on, though, um, I'm not <laughs> sure, is I have said and written many times, you can be an originalist or you can be an advocate of very strong, aggressive policing of free speech. You cannot be both because, for example, Judd Campbell of University of Richmond wrote a fantastic article in Yale showing that he wasn't saying pro or con or free speech doctrine. He was just saying it cannot be traced to 1789. No one should pretend that we should. Um, they didn't think of it that way. They didn't think of, of, of even speech as a judicially enforceable right, which is consistent with what you said at the beginning, which is the court never did it to 1919. So, again, do you, I'm just asking, you can be an originalist, you can be a free speech advocate for aggressive judicial review, but you can't be both. Do you agree with that? Um, I, I think, yes. I mean, I think that uh, originalism has lots of profound flaws, um, uh, one of them is that it's oh, Jeff. Hold on. I, I should I, sh- I should tell the view. I'm sorry. I should tell people you did blurb my book, so you have we do. I, I just want to I just want to disclose that for the public. Go ahead. Sure. Yeah. So, but one of them is I think originalism is is not originalist. That is, I do not for a second believe it's coherent or persuasive to argue that the framers of our constitution intended the Constitution to be treated as an originalist document. Right. Um, they didn't know what freedom of speech was. They didn't know what unreasonable searches and seizures were. They didn't know what depriving someone of life, liberty, or property without due process is. Um, later on, they didn't know what equal protection of the laws was. These are general principles. And they didn't have any clear understanding of what they meant, even in their own world, let alone in the future world. And they were not originalists. They, they were men of the Enlightenment. And they believed knowledge changes over time. And and that's how they were themselves thought about these things. So the first problem with originalism, it's simply self-contradictory. The second problem with it is that judges and academics who purport to be originalists often just can't find, in many instances, can't find any evidence of what the originalism, original meaning actually was. It, it wasn't there. There are some cases where you can say that. I think you can fairly say that the original meaning of the Equal Protection Clause did not guarantee same-sex marriage. Sure. Um, Although some originalists, uh, like Ilya Soman, Steve, even Steve Calabresi said it did. <laughs> right. um, but, uh, but, but for the most part, you often can't find anything specific. And so what they wind up doing more often than not is making up what they purport to have an original meaning that comports with their own political views. Yeah. And, and the key thing about originalism is if you look at the behavior of justices and judges, those who purport to be originalists – basically vote in cases in ways you could predict knowing nothing about originalism, but only knowing about their political and partisan views. Affirmative action, unconstitutional. Did the framers think that? Hardly. We don't know what they thought about that, right? Campaign finance. Actually, on the federal level, we do, because there were all kinds of freedmen bureaus that were thought valid and no one had any question. We actually know what the state level may be different, but the federal level, we know. Right. So, I mean, I, I, I think that originalism... Is, um, is is simply it was I think it was well intended by Bork and Scalia when they first started there. 
But I think over time what's happened, it's become totally disingenuous and without any real substance to it. And and I think the reality is in the world of academia, um, for a long time, people took it very seriously. Now I think it's not taken very seriously as a rigid, serious way of, of deciding cases. But um, yeah, I view it as a political yeah. identifier is basically what, what I agree for most people. I agree. Um, all right. So here's some. So we agree on that. Um, I actually, by the way, just one step further than that. If one is in favor of aggressive judicial review in per- period across the board, I don't think one can be an originalist because I, I have compiled a lot of data suggest or historical sources suggesting they absolutely expected judges to be modest, humble and apply a clear error constitutional rule. doesn't mean we should do it, but if you're an originalist, you kind of have to deal with that, and they don't. Right. Uh, Randy yeah. Barnett and I have disagreed about it. He's never addressed that issue. I mean, you know, but, but anyway. All right. Here's something that we're going to disagree on. So as you probably might know from previous conversations, I have actually a more European view of free speech, which is, I, I think, uh, or somewhere between European and us. I think political speech should be protected across the board. You know, if you're if you're arguing for or against a political result, and that's going to be hard to define. But I, you know, in that sense, I'm American all the way through. But in many other areas, like defamation, for example, um, I I I I actually think that we've gone too far. I, I think if somebody says Tom Cruise has had 14 affairs and has had sex with his dog, and and it's demonstrably false, but he can't prove malice like we want it. I don't don't think that's right. And I think there are some other areas, and campaign finance reform certainly is the only, I think we're the only country in the world that actually applies free speech to that kind of thing, or at least one of the only countries. Um, So is it possible we've gone too far on free speech? I I think we have. I know you probably disagree, but go ahead. No, no, I I think there are areas like campaign finance, for example, um, where we've gone too far. Um, I think that the cases I mentioned earlier, we'd be counted Gilbert, the content-based, viewpoint-based, I think we've gone too far. Um, but as a general matter, I think it's important to go too far. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that the, the, the real danger in a society is that the majority will abuse its authority in two particular ways. First, to disadvantage minorities and people that they do not relate to or identify with either because of outright hostility or because of indifference and that you need courts to guard against that. That's fundamental. And the second thing is in the political realm that you cannot trust majorities not to manipulate the political process, whether by speech or by uh, gerrymandering or by not following the principle of one person, one vote, and so on. You need courts to step in and, 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 and deal with that. Now, on the speech side, one could make the argument that the only speech or the core speech that should be protected by the First Amendment is that which is political. Uh, one could make that argument. And, 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 and I'm not. I'm speech, not. Right. But I'm close to it. <laughs> right. But one could make that argument that that's what the First Amendment is about. And that was partly why the court earlier held commercial advertising wasn't right. protected by the First Amendment. It's also why they held obscenity was not protected by the First Amendment. I don't know if you agree with that. Um, I don't and, agree with that. <laughs> yeah, well, I'd like to hear you explain that then. But um, <laughs> oh, let me, let me rephrase. In our world of strong judicial review, I don't agree with that. In my fantasy world of deferential judicial review, I would I, I would agree with it. That's- so you would allow the state to ban all sexual expression, obscene expression. 
Well, to find out. Um, I can do that. Um, but I want to be clear that – no, actually, I think I believe this even today. I, I think if the speech at issue is nothing more than sexual stimulation, nothing more, nothing more. Um, you know, a, a vibrator – sorry about this audience, but a vibrator with a sign on it saying, look at me, I'm great, I'm expressing an idea, I don't think that's protected by the First Amendment. And so the equivalent of a vibrator, I think, is not speech protected. I mean, it could be, but it's up to the it's up to the politicians, not the judges. That's what I think. And how do you how do you know what whether that's the case? It's going to I be mean, very hard. But right, so it's not possible. But, but I mean, you draw lines line all the look time. Up anal sex. Go online and and Google anal sex. I will not do that. Of, <laughs> I will not do that. <laughs> you'll see lots of images and videos. And is that is that sex or is that meant to educate people to inform them to let them know what's possible sexually Fair enough. to know what's gratifying sexually um how do you know the difference you don't you can't yeah, yeah. right so 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 this comes back to the basic point which is that i think we have to understand that in the realm of free speech defined broadly right government will manipulate these things for political and for ideological reasons so sexual expression will be restricted mainly by people who think sex is wrong. But lots of other people think sex is good. Who say sex, sex, who say sex is wrong. I doubt they actually think sex is wrong. It's the, or at, who say it, but don't, I don't really believe many people act in that direction. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> um, so I, I think the problem is that where the court has come out on free speech, and, and I do think one could reasonably argue that it's gone too far in certain areas, but I think where the court's come out on free speech is saying we don't trust – the government, to make judgments for our citizens about what ideas they can be exposed to. Yeah. And, you know, if I want to buy a car, right, I want to know, I want information to enable me to make an informed decision about what's the best car. And for the government to say you can't have certain information leads me to make stupid decisions. Is it real violation of my individual autonomy and, and and that is an intrusion on my knowledge and my ability to make informed decisions. Now, I don't think that's the same issue as in the political realm. I agree. But I do think that what the court has done is basically recognize that when it comes to regulating speech, government's motives are almost always problematic and that they are distorting what people are allowed to think and what they're allowed to learn and what they're allowed to know. And that is deeply incompatible with the democratic society. Yeah, you know, so I, I mean, I have sympathy for a lot of that. When I was a law clerk, we had a case involving um, signs on public roads in a Georgia suburb. And the truth was, it was non-view content based, non-viewpoint based. It was it was a pollution zoning type of ordinance. Um, it was a very hard case uh, under, you know, at the time, 1982. Um that was a situation where the, the, the county, whether I agree with it or not, it wasn't about restricting speech. It really wasn't. It was about raising property values. I, 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 I do think that happens sometimes in the commercial realm. And when that happens in the commercial realm, judges should be a little more deferential than when it happens in the non-commercial realm. Is there anything? Well, that- even the court, by the way, today still adheres to that. Yeah. Even today, the court says commercial advertising and commercial speech is not given the same protection as other forms of protected speech. Right. And it gets a lot more protection now than it ever did before. 
but it still, in theory, only gets intermediate or a little bit more than intermediate protection. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the court does agree with you on that. Um, and again, I, I don't really, I don't strongly disagree with you on commercial advertising. I mean, I think that it, it shouldn't have the same protection as political speech. Um, and I think the court probably gives it more protection now than they, they should. But I do think it's important for people to be informed about, you know, what kind of car they want to buy. Um, and what computer they want to buy. That's, that's, but that matters to people in important ways. To, to me, it matters what the interest is on the other side. And, and, and I think judges are pretty good in the free speech area of smoking out illegitimate persons. Okay. I want to, I want to move on to a meta constitutional law and personal question for you. Cause I really, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm a huge fan of your career and everything you've done. Um, and you and I, I have had discussions before, um, where it's obviously I'm a little more on the legal realist side than you are, you know, by a little bit. Um, Here's my question. So when you talked earlier about the court protecting minorities and how, you know, uh, majorities will often be indifferent to or in our country until very recently under the law, formerly hostile to uh, racial minorities. I look at American history very differently than you do. And I see a Supreme Court that stopped Congress from ending slavery in the territories, that voted down um, the uh, Civil Rights Act in the 1870s, that would have ended segregation before it began. I see the Lochner era. Um, I see a Warren Court blip. <laughs> and then I see the, Ro- and then I see the, Rehnquist, the, Berger, Rehnquist, the later Berger, Rehnquist, and Roberts courts. Um, and I think Congress has been to the left of the court throughout trying to end child labor, trying to end you – know, for most of American history. You came of age in the 60s. Um, you clerked for Justice Brennan. Um, do you ever – oh, let me rephrase that. Um, is it possible that you're um, – you, I have a great hostility towards the Supreme Court. That's not a private thing. You don't in general as an institution. Is it possible that's because you were there at its most progressive moment in American history, I think? I think 1972 and three would be the apex of progressivism – ever in the Supreme Court of the United States. Since I'm a legal realist, I would say I think your priors are getting in the way here of seeing the court over time. That's, but I'm curious what you, how you react to all that. Um, I think that's a fair question. And I think that it, 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 it would be interesting, and I know people have done this, to look at the court over time and to see on balance, has it been more positive or negative for particularly these issues that I've identified. But I'm reluctant to go there because I do believe that it's important that our society have an institution that is capable and responsible for guarding against certain types of fundamental abuses. And the problem is that oftentimes the justices on the Supreme Court do not understand or accept that as the appropriate mission. So you're right. The Warren Court era um, was the high point of the Supreme Court doing this. And um, as you know, David Strauss and I just wrote this book on the Warren Court, in which we we illustrate that. I'm enough of an optimist, (laughs) maybe maybe erroneously, um, to believe that what we have to find a way to do is to make sure that the people who are appointed to the court understand that this is the fundamental responsibility. And it may be amending the Constitution is the way to do this. It may be that giving the Supreme Court the power to invalidate laws only if the laws 
violate these two precepts would be a way of constraining the bad action by the court, but still giving it the ability to do what's fundamental. Because it's also the case that if you didn't have this court, you wouldn't have Roe v. Wade, you wouldn't have uh, same-sex marriage, you wouldn't have Brown v. Board of Education, you wouldn't have Miranda v. Arizona. Um, And uh, this would be, in many ways, a worse society. And so it goes both ways. And and so I'm not prepared to say we should get rid of the court. But given the current makeup of the court, (laughs) I'm very nervous about that. Yeah. Um, All right. We're we're running out of time. And I have a couple kind of um, uh, crazy questions to talk to you about. And and if you don't want to talk about anything, just say so. I want to talk about Justice Scalia for a minute. Um, and And I want to do it in two parts. The first part is your personal relationship with him. Because do I have it right that you wrote an op-ed somewhere, maybe the Times, saying that maybe, maybe, just maybe, Catholicism is a, is a partial explainer. You didn't take a very strong stance, I don't think, of Justice Scalia's opinions. And then he boycotted Chicago for years. Is that true? Can you tell that story? Is that true? Um, so what happened was that the court um, held that uh, partial birth abortion was unconstitutional, overturning a prior decision that basically reached the opposite result. And all five justices in the majority um, were Catholic. And I wrote an op-ed that said, basically, that this is concerning. And I said that I had been a law clerk to Justice Brennan, who was the only Catholic justice at the time. And I saw him struggle to reconcile his personal religious views about abortion with his responsibilities as a justice of the Supreme Court in Roe v. Wade. And he did the right thing, which to put his religious views aside and ask, what is what does our Constitution mean? And he voted, of course, with Jeff, the majority. Was he, was he personally anti-choice? He was concerned about it. Okay. He, he was, he, he, he no, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't say he was personally anti-choice. I don't know that. Yeah. But he clearly had had a conflict about it. Um, And I said, uh, you have to wonder whether these five justices in the majority, all of whom were Catholic, took enough time to focus internally themselves on putting aside their very strong, perfectly legitimate religious views in addressing this constitutional question. And I must say I was a bit naive in writing this because it it got a lot of... um, feedback that was critical, much more than I anticipated. Um, and sometime thereafter, some students in, in the law school from the Federalist Society um, came to me and said, you know, we invited Justice Scalia to come and give a talk. And he said, I'm not going to come there as long as Jeff Stone's on the faculty. That's what he said. Stop it. Yeah. But you, were friends, and, wait, 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 you were friends once upon a time, weren't you? Yeah, we were colleagues and we were friends. Yeah. And our kids knew each other and we used to play poker. We have, we have a faculty poker game at law school. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I were regulars in playing that. Um, so yeah, we were, we were buddies. And, um, and I said, I said to the students, that's crazy. That it doesn't make any sense. Scalia wouldn't do that. But then I heard this over and over again from other people. And for the next couple of years, Scalia would not come out to the law school to give a talk. He would not hire a clerk, a student's clerks, really? which he always had done before that. Wow. Wow. And this was really unpleasant. And then I got a call from um, 
I forget her name now. It was Joe Joan Piscupic, who was writing yeah. a biography of Scalia. And she said to me, um, I had heard this story about you and Scalia. And I went to interview him. And, and during the interview, I asked him about it. And he suddenly leaped up from behind his desk and said, I won't set foot in that law school again as long as Jeff Stone's on the faculty. <laughs> and she said to me, how do you, what do you think about that? And I said, well, you know, that's just Nino. You know, I, 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 he is doing that, I guess, but, you know, that's just Nino. But at that point, I realized, and then the book came out, and it told the whole story. And I think he was upset about it now becoming very visible. And I was upset because it was, it was disadvantaging our students in significant ways. So I wrote him a letter, and I said, Dear Nino, I understand that you've been upset about that op-ed I wrote. Um, I'm really sorry that I wrote it in a way that upset you. I didn't apologize for writing it, but I said, I'm very sorry for writing it in a way that upset you. And we've been friends a long time and I hope we can get over this. And he now wanted to get over it because the book had made it a very visible issue. So I got a call from him like three days after I wrote the letter saying, Jeff, thanks for your letter. As a good Catholic, I forgive you. (laughs) Which he knew was funny. And he then came out to the law school, hired our clerks again, asked me to introduce him, and okay. we became good friends over again. So I didn't know all the details. I mean, uh, our mutual friend, Dick Posner, had told me that story kind of, and um, I didn't know all the details. But, um, okay, so that's – I hope everybody enjoyed that because I did. Um, but now I want to take – I want to make a serious point, and, 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 it, and, I, and I've spent a lot of time for the last 15 years on this, this both before and after his death. The day he died, I was asked by Salon to write something about him, and I and I wrote, I thought, an appropriate thing on the day that he died, you know, um, saying liberals will miss him as a foil, you know, basically what I said. Um, but, Jeff, I truly believe, and I really want your view on this, that the myth of Justice Scalia is a major problem for American politics and American jurisprudence. Give me two minutes and then um, – he was not an originalist. I have cataloged in law review articles and books all of the non-originalist cases he – which is almost all of them. He, he overturned, I think, 135 state and federal laws, of which almost none had a persuasive originalist basis, especially if one believes the First Amendment doesn't justify this. Um, he was a small man in many ways. I mean, I, you, the story – your story with him is a, is a microcosm of other st- – or is a illustrative of other st- – there's a big story about him at the University of Virginia and a student being late because of a car accident at the airport and him telling the dean he's never coming back. And, and I, I – and there are other things like that. And then we get to his rhetoric and his dissents, which, you know, putting a bag over his head in Obergefell – um, uh, comparing homosexual conduct to murder in um, Lawrence, I think it was, um, his Romer rhetoric, you know, really bad stuff um, and, and, and coarse stuff that law students find funny, but lawyers find coarse, I think. And I think America needs to come to grips with the idea that he was not a sincere judge. He was not a professional man of good faith in that sense. And even personally, I know he was great to his law clerks. I know he was very funny. He was kind of a bully. And, and I don't want students emulating him. Am I crazy? Is that fair? I'm curious. Because you knew him much better. You knew him. I, mean, I didn't know him personally. Um, the Scalia I knew personally yeah. um, was a good, decent, funny, smart person. Um, Except for this one incident I related, um, he and I got along extremely well. 
even though we disagreed about almost everything. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, I, I, in terms of his opinions, he, he said something to me one time when we were having dinner that I thought was really illuminating. He said, I write my opinions because I want them in the case books. Yeah. And he basically said, I want students to read what I have to say. And if I write sort of neutral, calm stuff, it'll never get in the case books. But if I write things that are dramatic and explosive, the, the editors of the case books will include them and the students will read them and that'll, that'll educate them about what I think is important. So I think he was strategic. Um, I, I think he could, obviously is in my instance, he could have a temper. Um, but, <laughs> But, but as a person, I actually liked him, and we were good friends, even though we disagreed about everything. Uh, uh, Dick Posner, who knew him not as well as you, but knew him, certainly. They were, they were colleagues, you know, early on. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I call him Dick because he wants us to call him Dick. So um, uh, Dick has said to me, this is my last Scalia question, and then I have one more, and then I could talk to you all day, but we're going to have to end this. Um, Scalia was obviously very bright and very smart. But Dick thought that what limited him was he, 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 his, his range of vision was very narrow and he couldn't really get out of his own way and his own values and his own view of the world. Unlike someone like Stevens or Souter or Kennedy who could at least get out of their own way uh, at, at, at times. Even Roberts, I think, can get out of his own way at times. Do you agree with that assessment by, by Dick? Yes, I, I think Scalia had you know very strong emotional views about things, and um, was not open-minded yeah. about issues. And these these were not all about religion, obviously. But one of the interesting things about the the, the Amy Coney Barrett confirmation is the issue of can you ask about religion? And here, I do think maybe before you, before you say this, we should disclose you and I wrote an op-ed together in the New York Times on the first hearing about her religion. People can go look at that, but I want to get that out there. Go ahead. Right. But I, I do think that um, the op-ed that I wrote that got me in trouble with Scalia yeah. th- raised an important question, which is that justices should not allow their personal views to distort their responsibility as a justice without being very self-aware and understanding them. And with someone like Amy Coney Barrett, I think it is fair to say, can you put your religion aside? Why is it that every vote you cast is going to conform with your religious views when those religious views are relevant to the issue, as was true with Scalia? Right, right. And a justice has to be able to separate those things. Scalia could never separate them. Yeah, I, I think that makes him not a noble figure to emulate as a judge, not not because of the religion, because of anything. You know, if someone if someone is an anarchist and gets on the Supreme Court, personally, they should put aside their anarchy leanings, and we agree on that. All right, it's been one last question. I, I know people are interested in this from you because you're such a um, wise observer of Supreme Court politics. Obergefell is safe, yes? Do we think Obergefell is yeah. yeah, I think Obergefell is safe. I, I think that the um, the public reaction to a Burgerfell has been far less negative uh, than one might have expected at the time. Um, I, I think that's true because people have learned that people they know are gay, yeah, which they never knew before. 
Yeah. And it could be their kids. It could be their cousins. It could be their neighbors. It could be their employees. It could be. They suddenly realize that these are people who they never would have guessed before. But they now know that they're gay. And even though they may have strong religious or moral views against homosexuality, I think they've come to understand to a, a much greater degree than they ever imagined possible that these are real people who I care about. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, so I, I do think that we've passed that point um, on the Supreme Court overturning Obergefell. Now, is it impossible they would do that? Um, no, but I, because I have no doubt that six of them, assuming she's on the court, six of them absolutely unalterably believe it was the wrong decision. Um, but I, I do think that it would, it, there's not the, the political impetus to overrule it the way there is for Rome. Yeah. So I think they will separate those two issues. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, I think they will structure constitutional law to give everyone the ability to discriminate against gays and lesbians and transsexuals. And um, that's a major problem that I think we're going to see happen. Only if the asserted justification is faith, because the boss, um, you know, I was doing some research for the Bostock case, and I think I found that 60 plus, I mean, like 68%, I mean, high 60s percent of American people thought gays and lesbians should be protected at work from employment discrimination. And I think that's what explains Roberts and, and, and Gorsuch going along, not textualism. It's just, I think Gorsuch probably believes that. You know, he probably believes if you're gay and at work, you shouldn't be discriminated against, you know, and that's not more complicated. Um, yes, this is- Point of fell as well, so yeah. Yeah, I, um, I do think they're gonna limit it when faith is at issue, um, and that's gonna be a real problem in the future, I think. Um, we'll yes, I agree. I, we can go on for another hour, but Jeff, I got to end it there. Thank you so much for doing this. It was great seeing My, you, and, and I, I always appreciate your perspective so much. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. This is it's a great um, podcast, and uh, Thank you. congratulations on it.